Amen. Mike, I was, I was thinking as you were praying for um, Ecuador and what God did through the loss of Jim Elliott and others, just the way that God loves to bring about great things through great weakness and great suffering. I think that's just the way that God works, and that's an amazing thing, and it's something that ought to give us comfort and joy, even when we endure suffering ourselves. Before we study God's Word together, I I just want to talk for a moment about um, what's going on with my voice. I'll actually share more personal uh, things tonight. Members, I hope you'll be there for that if you're able. But let me just share a couple of things that you'll notice that might be different uh, over the next few weeks and um, hopefully not too much longer than that as we worship together. Uh, But as I'm dealing with inflammation in my vocal cords, uh, you'll notice, uh, one, I will be speaking less in our worship services. So our, our pastoral residents are doing things like our welcome and announcements, and you guys don't pay attention to that anyways. It doesn't really matter who does it. Um, now, they did a great job. Thank you, Sam, and the other guys will be helping us out with that. Some of you do pay attention. I know. Good job, Nick. <laughs> um, number two, I'm going to be preaching less. Well, that's hard for me, um, but it is, uh, it is good. It is good. Um, even if my vocal cords are bound, so to speak, the Word of God is not bound, and it is not limited by the preacher. The power is not in the man, but in the message of God's Word. And so you'll hear from other people and hopefully uh, be instructed and encouraged and edified and helped, and hopefully God will use that to grow those other men of God as they proclaim His Word. And number three And this might bring some smiles. Uh, You might, when I preach, uh, hear some shorter sermons from me. Uh, So uh, one of the goals for me is to try not to strain my voice too much um, as my vocal cords heal. So I will try to preach a little bit shorter. Uh, Number four, I'm going to be preaching a little bit differently in, in more of a conversational tone like I'm talking right now. Um, I need to avoid overly straining my vocal cords, and I can rest my vocal cords a lot during the week and undo all of the healing that happened in one sermon. And so I'm going to be trying to be a little bit more conversational as I talk and hopefully not bore you. I hope you will not not interpret that as boredom with the text. God's Word is not boring. It is beautiful, it is powerful, it is good. Even if I talk like this as I'm preaching to you, I hope that you will engage your heart and mind here and listen to what God has to say to us in His Word. Number five, you'll notice that the microphone's a little hotter. And again, that's to help, hopefully, uh, for me as I hear my voice aloud on the speakers, you can hear me, and it's just to remind me that I don't need to yell for you to hear me. Uh, So that'll be helpful, hopefully, And number six, you might notice, um, and when I'm preaching, maybe today or maybe in future sermons, you might notice some people in in the congregation going like this at some point. Hopefully that's not because I said something unhelpful or wrong. Uh, They're plants that are going to help me if they notice me overly exerting my voice. And all of you are welcome to do this, but I know some of you won't. 
because you feel like that's like hindering the spirit or something like that. It's really not. It's actually helping me so that I can use my voice faithfully to preach and teach God's word for decades to come. That's the goal. So those are some of the things that you might notice that are different in the weeks ahead. I do covet your prayers. I thank you for your encouragement, and I can share more and maybe even answer some questions uh, tonight in our members' meeting. But first, let me just go to the Lord one more time and ask God for his help before we look at his word together. Father, you're good, you love us, and we thank you for the gospel. We have sung about it, we have prayed about it, and now, Lord, as we study your word, we pray that we would see its beauty afresh. There are some that walked into these doors with deep pain, weakness, maybe even sorrow. Father, we pray that the words of the song we just sung would be the desires of our heart, that we would not long for fitness before we come to you, that our heart's desire would be to live out what we sung, that all the fitness you require is to feel our need of you. Help us to come to you with empty hands, knowing that only empty hands get filled. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps the only thing worse than being in danger is being in danger and not realizing it. On December 6th, 1941, the day before the day that would live in infamy, the U.S. intercepted a Japanese message that inquired about ship movements and berthing positions at Pearl Harbor. The cryptologists gave the message to his superior, her superior rather, who said that he would get back to her on Monday. At 3.20 a.m. on December the 7th, 1941, a U.S. minesweeper guarding the harbor entrance reported sighting a periscope. That periscope belonged to one of the five 46-ton Japanese midget submarines that would eventually attack the battleships on Pearl Harbor. But after a fruitless search, the periscope sighting was dismissed as bogus, and the skipper went back to sleep in his cabin. At 7 a.m., a radar operator on Oahu saw a large group of airplanes on his screen heading toward the island. He called his superior, who told him that it was probably a group of U.S. B-17 bombers, don't worry about it. But 55 minutes later, the attack on Pearl Harbor began. By 9, 10 a.m. on December 7, 1941, the attack was over. 19 Navy ships and 328 aircraft had either been damaged or destroyed, and 2,403 U.S. personnel were dead. Only the Lord knows how many lives would have been saved if even one of those warnings had been treated more seriously. Brother, sister, follower of Jesus in this room, whether you realize it or not, you are in danger. You're in danger. 
You might not feel particularly in danger this morning. You might feel fine. Perhaps you're, you're feeling quite good about yourself and about your circumstances this morning. Maybe not. But regardless of how you feel, you are in danger. And God in His Word and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is actually, among other things, warning us of the danger that we are in. But He doesn't merely warn us that we're in danger. Jesus, in His kindness, tells us what to do about it. The Christian in danger should cry out to his Father. Why don't you turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, we are concluding, or just about concluding our study on the Lord's Prayer. Jesus has been teaching his disciples, he's teaching Christians how to pray. And you remember that he lists six petitions in this prayer, It's meant to be for us a model for how we think about prayer and how we bring our prayers to the Lord. The first three petitions are all about God, His name, His kingdom, His will. Fourth, fifth, and sixth petitions are about us. Number four is to pray and ask God for provision. Number five is to ask God for pardon, forgive us our debts. This is not the prayer of, of conversion, but the prayer of restoration to right relationship with the Father, because this is a prayer that Christians pray. Now, if Jesus stopped the prayer here, if the prayer ended with, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, you would probably not think that you are in danger. But Jesus concludes with one final petition. Look at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 6. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Brothers and sisters, we do not have to be caught off guard like the men and women at Pearl Harbor. Jesus has warned us about the danger that we're in, and he has given us instructions on what to do about it. Cry out to your Father. So this morning, with God's help, I want to answer just a few questions to help us escape the danger that we're in as we study this line of the prayer together. Question number one is, why are we in danger? Why are we in danger? Uh, Think about this prayer for a moment. Why not stop with food and forgiveness? I wonder if there's anyone in this room that would stop there. I wonder if there's Christians that would say, you know, as long as my needs are met, my physical needs are met, and I know that Jesus has forgiven me, I'm fine. I don't really need anything else. As long as my belly's full and my sins are forgiven, I am happy as a clam. I don't need anything else. If that's you, brother, sister, you have misunderstood the Christian life. Jesus is clear throughout this sermon that citizens of the kingdom of heaven are called to be holy. It's all over this sermon. If you have your Bible open, go back just a little bit to chapter 5, verse 20. 
Matthew 5, verse 20, listen to what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, it's greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you aren't righteous, with a greater righteousness than the kind of superficial surface righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, you're going to hell. I want you to listen to that. Jesus is expecting, He's demanding that His followers pursue real righteousness. Well, look at verse 29 of Matthew 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Notice again, the person who does not labor to kill his sin and pursue righteousness is in danger of what? Of hell. Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus says, you therefore be what? Perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, Jesus is not here demanding that we must be sinless in this life, but He is saying that if you've been adopted by your heavenly Father, you will, over time, begin to look like Him, won't you? Jesus is expecting righteousness. Go on to chapter 6. This is what Jason preached last week. Verses 14 and 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The person who does not labor... Do the hard work of striving to forgive others is a person, Jesus says, who has not been forgiven. Do you you see the expectation of holiness? Look at chapter 7, verse 19. It's all over this sermon. Chapter 7, verse 19. Jesus says, every tree, every tree, not most of the trees, every tree, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The person who does not labor to bear good fruit, Christian fruit, like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, the person who does not bear good fruit is cut off thrown into the fire. Jesus demands and expects that His citizens, the citizens of His kingdom, pursue real holiness. Chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who what? What's it say in your Bibles? The one who what? Does. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Calling him Lord is not enough. Jesus expects his followers actually follow him. Jesus demands and expects obedience of his people. One more, Matthew 7, verse 24. 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and what? Does them. It's not enough to hear the words of Jesus. Jesus says, hear them and do them. That person will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. It's the wise man who survives the storm of God's wrath, and it's the wise man who obeys the words of Jesus. I hope you get the point, brother and sister. The expectation that Jesus has for kingdom citizens is a real, lived-out, actual holiness. Not perfection, but the direction of your life is moving towards growth in holiness. If you sit in this room as a follower of Jesus and you think or you say, it does not matter how I live, you are sadly mistaken. If, if you think you can follow Jesus and do whatever you want on your computer or drink whatever you want, however much you want, however long you want, or think whatever you want, whenever you want, or say whatever you want, or, or do whatever you want. If you think that that's the life of the Christian, as long as you have food and forgiveness, you have misunderstood the Christian life. God saves you, and then He sanctifies you. He calls you to be holy. This is not merely the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It's all over the New Testament. Let me give you two other places. One is in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 21 to 23, first half of 23. Paul writes, And you who once were alienated and hostile, hostile to God in your mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Let me just stop for just a second. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, the way you remedy this problem is not by trying harder to be holy, you need to be reconciled. And how are you reconciled to God? Through the flesh of Christ sacrificed on the cross for you. God sent his son to die and take the penalty for your sin. And if you are in Christ, there's no condemnation left for you. But the verse doesn't end there, does it? In order to what? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach, before who? Before my neighbors? Do I got to look better than them? Do I got to be above reproach compared to that person on the other end of the aisle who I know he's doing this or that on the weekends? No. Who must you be holy and above reproach before? Before him, for God himself. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. In other words, God in Christ saves you from your sin for a life of holiness. Or Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, which tells us to strive for peace with everyone and for what? The holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
Now, some people might think, well, that holiness, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, that's the holiness that I receive as a gift from Christ when I become a Christian. No, it's not. You don't have to strive for that. You receive that free. You repent and believe, and it's given to you. As Mike prayed earlier, I'm starting to yell, sorry. As Mike prayed earlier, or said earlier before the catechism, Adam's sin is imputed to us, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to those who trust in Christ. It's given to you as a gift. You are credited with righteousness. But you too, as a Christian, must strive for holiness. Now, here's why we're in danger. Do you see it, Christian? This is what you're called to live for. This is what you're called to strive for. You are called to be holy. And yet, look at yourself. Look at me. Look at your last week. Look at your thought life. Look at the ways, the countless ways you have failed. Look at the daily temptations that you face towards bitterness, anger, lust, pride. Do you see, Christian, why you're in danger? We're in danger because Jesus demands holiness, and holiness is hard. It's hard. Let me ask a second question. What must we do? What do we need to do about it? The answer is simple. It's gloriously, incredibly simple. Now, I'll tell you something about myself. Many of you know this already. I am a checklist sort of person. I actually, I have an app, a checklist app, and I have hundreds of items on that checklist. I have recurring items. I have reminders for all sorts of things. If you come up to me and you tell me something, in fact, this happened right before service, and you say, hey, can we do this or that? I'm going to make a note and put it in my checklist because if I don't, it's not going to happen. And some of you are like that. You're checklist people. And you're thinking, okay, I've got to be holy. What's the checklist? Here it is. You know what it is? Ask. Ask. Go to your Father and ask Him for help. That's Matthew 6, 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, that simple verse, it looks like, at face value, it looks like two requests, doesn't it? Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. But as we'll soon see, it's really one request stated in two different ways. So let's look at the first part. Lead us not into temptation. Jesus says to pray to your Father, lead us not into temptation. Let me ask you a question. Why would we pray for deliverance from temptation? Why would you pray, God, don't lead me into temptation if God already told you that he won't tempt you? Listen to James chapter 1. This is in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God doesn't tempt 
He doesn't entice to sin. That's what temptation is. When we think of temptation, we're thinking about, you know, you're holding out something to somebody and you're trying to get them to take the bait, right? Like a fisherman putting a worm on the hook, you're tempting the fish to bite. Why? Because you want a fish. God is not like that. He doesn't tempt you, Christian. He's not playing cosmic games with you. He's not toying with you up in heaven somewhere trying to say, oh, let's see what he does with this. God doesn't do that, James says. Now, some respond that the word tempted here in Matthew chapter 6 can mean test or trial. Now, in a, t- a trial or a test, you're not enticing someone to sin, but you're putting them through a challenging situation to bring about a positive result. So maybe think about Abraham, when God tested him with commands about his son Isaac, you remember? God was not enticing Abraham to sin, but he was testing his faith. And so some people say, well, what Jesus is saying here in verse 13 is, lead us not into testing or lead us not into trial. Now, that could be what Jesus means, but I think that creates another challenge. Why would we pray for deliverance from trials if we're supposed to count them all joy? We just talked, as we began, about how God often uses suffering and pain and trial and weakness to make you look more like Jesus. James says in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That word trial there is the same word that that Jesus uses in Matthew 6. So why then does Jesus say deliver or lead us not into temptation or trial? I think the, the, the answer, the solution, the key to understanding this part of the prayer is to seeing the two lines as connected. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. This is typical Hebrew parallelism. You say one thing and then say it again in slightly different words, and the two lines kind of mutually interpret one another. Because what does it mean, deliver us from evil? Some translations, and yours might be one of them, uh, translates that the evil one. And that is a possible translation. It could be saying, deliver us from Satan himself. And John Calvin writes, there's no necessity for raising a debate on this point, for the meaning remains nearly the same, that we are in danger from the devil and from sin if the Lord does not protect and deliver us. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, here's what we're doing. We're asking God to protect us from giving in to temptation. You're asking him to protect you from doing evil. You're asking him to protect you from being ensnared by evil. You're asking him to help you be holy. I love the way the Westminster Larger Catechism says. It says it this way, that in this prayer, we're asking that we may be kept from being tempted to sin, or if tempted that by His Spirit we may be powerfully supported and enabled to stand in the hour of temptation, or when fallen, raised again and recovered out of it, 
and have a sanctified use and improvement thereof that our sanctification and salvation may be perfected. Satan trodden under our feet and we fully freed from sin, temptation, and all evil forever. This prayer is saying then, here's what it's saying. When you say this final petition, you're saying, God, protect me from temptation today might be helpful to know exactly where you're tempted the most right now. So God, help me where I'm tempted. You know where it is. Help me. Help me from in temptation. Or God, help me to resist this temptation that I'm facing right now. By the way, I think if we're honest, this is a place where we often struggle. Many of us, once the temptation starts or whatever the sin is, we, we just give in. We don't cry out, God, deliver me from evil in that moment. Or in this prayer, we're asking, as the catechism says, God, forgive me for giving in to temptation. Please restore me. And yet, in all of that, that really isn't quite right either. Because notice what Jesus says in this text. He doesn't say, Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. What does he say? Us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Once again, this is a prayer that Jesus is inviting you to be a part of the community of faith. Let me just say a word to those of you, perhaps if there's some in this room, that are not connected to a church family. Maybe you've been gathering with us for a while, or maybe you're a member, but you're kind of on the fringes, not really connected. Do you see how even in something as basic as prayer, Jesus intends it to be lived out with others in relationship? If you're a follower of Jesus, and you keep His people at a distance, you are not following Him as you should. The call to holiness is a call to holiness together. This is a prayer that says, God protect us from temptation. This is a prayer that not only knows where my brother might be tempted, but prays for my brother, that God would protect him. I wonder if follower of Jesus in this room if we even know one another's struggles well enough to pray that God would lead us, us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a shameless plug yet again for something like our fellowship groups, a way for you, Christian, follower of Jesus, to get to know people in your faith family so that you can go to the Father on their behalf. It's not enough to pray for your own personal holiness, Christian. Christ invites you, Christ pleads with you to pray also for the holiness of your sister for the victory of your brother. Listen to the way the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 10. 
Let us, not, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's, what's the writer saying? The day's drawing near. Jesus is coming back soon. Judgment day is coming. So what do we need to do? We need to hold fast. We need to hold fast to the confession of our hope. We hold fast to our faith. Have you, Christian, ever been in a situation where you've wondered if you can hold on any longer? Have you ever felt like, I just can't do this anymore? Right, if Hebrews says... As the day approaches, that feeling's going to intensify, Christian. You're going to feel like that more and more. It's going to get harder to hold on. This, the waves are going to get fiercer. The storm's going to get stronger. So what do you need? What's in the middle of that verse? Others that stir you up to love and good works. Notice also what the writer says. He says, let us consider how to stir one another up. In other words, it's not enough for me to just to come and I'm going to throw encouragement bombs across the congregation. I need to know how you need to be encouraged. I need to spend some time and think about it. I need to think about where you're struggling. I need to know you. If I'm really going to stir you up to love and good works, I need to know the good works that you're struggling to perform. I need to know the people that you're struggling to love. And I need to spend time considering how to stir you up. This is what this prayer is all about. Praying that, doing that for each other. Let me ask one final question this morning. One final question. Where is our hope? Where is our hope? Knowing you're in danger is not enough, Christian. Knowing why you're in danger is not enough. Neither, in fact, is knowing what to do. When the U.S. military personnel reported some of the different warning signs of the attack on Pearl Harbor, they knew or suspected that they were in danger. And they went to someone and they told them, but their response was disbelief, no help. Listen to me, Christian, that's not what we have in our Father. Listen to me. If you go to your Father truly asking for His help, He won't say to you, come back to me on Monday. He won't say to you, it's bogus, you're not really in trouble, you're fine. He loves you. He cares for you. He will intervene for your help. He can deliver you from evil, and He wants to deliver you from evil. Christian, our hope, our hope for deliverance is not ourselves. It's not each other. It's not even how well you can pray the Lord's Prayer. Our hope is God. 
Now, let me tell you what God does often when we come to Him, when we pray to Him. Let me tell you about an email I received recently. It was such an encouragement to me. Hopefully, it could be an encouragement to some, some of you. Uh, the writer says, two Sundays ago, I was ready to confront my boss about the stressful and frustrating work environment we were experiencing and how unhappy we were. I was prepared with a written letter I was going to read so I was not diverted off topic or forget what needed to be said. And I was going to explain what changes needed to be made. My letter was tactfully written, but it was a bit blunt and I knew it was going to sting a little. I've worked with this person for many years and this was not going to be our first confrontation. Sunday morning's prayer of confession, this was a few weeks ago, was the sin of grumbling and complaining. Oh boy, I was smacked in the face with that one. Feeling conflicted, I immediately began to wrestle with how to move forward on Tuesday when I went back to work. And then you preached on prayer and pointed out two pitfalls, not asking and asking selfishly. That was a hit on the head. Guilty, guilty, and guilty. I had not prayed about work, at least not recently. And when I prayed, I prayed selfishly. Now in a serious quandary, I didn't know what to do except pray. Let me just pause for a second, Christian. When you are in such a state where you don't know what to do except pray, that is an incredible gift of grace. You might feel like everything around you is unraveling, but when you come up against a problem you cannot solve, you cannot fix, and all you can do is go to your Father and ask. He is there ready and waiting to listen to you and help you. Email continued. I've been praying every morning in my devotional time for the past two weeks, and I'll have you know the office, my boss, made an immediate 180-degree turnaround. It's not perfect, and I don't know if it will be lasting, but for now, it's better, and I'm, I'm seeing a change for the good as my letter still sits in my desk drawer unread. Now, look at all the ways that the Father shows His care. And just that little story. He exposed the confessing and the grumbling going on in the email writer's heart. You ever think that perhaps God has you here? And one of the reasons he has you here is you're going to hear a prayer of confession about a sin that you're struggling with. Or a prayer of praise about something about God that you struggle believing or something in His Word, that is God's grace poured out on you, Christian, that He would kindly, providentially order even the schedules of the universe to help you in your need. God's care shown in protecting this member from taking matters into her own hands rather than trusting God. How often have you done that, Christian? How often have I, how often have I come up with a problem, come up against a problem and think, here's the solution, here's what I need to do to fix it. I'll just power through. You're in a good place when you have no other solutions but God. Because He's the only one that really can help you anyways. 
God's grace was shown by answering her prayer and changing the heart of her boss, protecting her and her co-workers from a conflict that could have led to more temptations to sin. And even in sharing that story with me to encourage me in a moment of discouragement. Do you see God's kindness when we ask? Listen to me, Christian. Your hope in being delivered from evil is not you. Your hope in being delivered from evil is not your church. Your hope in being delivered from evil is your God who cares far more about your holiness than you could. Listen to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God started a work in you, Christian. When you trusted in Christ, he started a good work in you. What's the promise? He's going to finish it. He's not going to let you go. You might feel broken and worn out and despairing. Listen to me. Just go to the Father and ask him for help. I love the way Martin Luther explained the Christian life in one of his writings. He says, this life is not Righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it's going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam with glory, but all is being purified. Christian, we are in danger, so we must pray. But our hope is not in ourselves. It's not in our awareness of the temptation. It's not even in our ability to ask for help. Our faith is in the Father who promises to hold his children fast. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing that song. And after we sing, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to invite you, parents, if you have children in the nursery, to go and gather them while we sing so that all of our workers, all of our church family can take the Lord's Supper together. If you'd like to talk with someone or pray with someone before you take communion, you're welcome to head to the white flag and do so, and someone will be there to pray with you. I'm going to pray for us now, and then we'll stand and sing. Father, you are our only hope. As Peter said to Jesus, where else shall we go? You alone have the words of life. We don't have anywhere else to turn, Lord, but you. God, I pray that you would bring some Christians in this room to the end of themselves. That's not an easy thing to pray because I know that means suffering. But Lord, I pray that you would bring them to the place where they have nothing else to do but go to you. No other options left but asking for help. And Lord, I pray that when they get to that place and they cry out to you and they ask for deliverance, when they ask that you would protect them from evil and deliver them, that they would find you to be a loving, kind, gracious Father 
who wants to restore his wayward children. Father, if there's any in this room that think that they can somehow figure this out on their own, get a checklist and pursue holiness and and they can make it happen by their hard work, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. God, I pray that you would strip them of that pride. May today be the day that they cry out to you for salvation. And Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that's a follower of Jesus, that you would expand, you would broaden our horizon. Help us to look beyond my temptation. Help us to look beyond me being delivered from evil. Help us to look to each other. Help us to see the brothers struggling with lust and love them enough to pray for them and help them. Help us to see those that are struggling with bitterness and love them enough to talk with them and encourage them to, con- to confess and forgive. Help us to pray for deliverance from pride. Help us to love each other enough to pray for the holiness of one another. Lord, we ask that you would do these things and more, not for our sake and not for our glory, but for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Just stand with me and sing.